0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 7th edition of Warcomp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB split panel decision continues the erosion of the URIMR provisions of SB 863. Here's what happened in the case of Sandoval versus the San Diego Unified School District. Esther Sandoval sustained an injury while employed by the San Diego Unified School District. A request for authorization was made for right shoulder shoulder rotator cuff repair surgery. The request was submitted for utilization review, but both parties stipulated that the UR was not performed in a timely manner. Therefore, where there is no timely UR decision subject to IMR, the issue of medical necessity for the surgery is to be determined by the workers' compensation judge. And in this case, the judge determined that the medical legal opinions of the treating physician and the consultative reports constituted substantial evidence of need for a right shoulder surgery despite the lack of any citation to the MTUS provisions that justify the recommendation. The petition for reconsideration argued that the medical opinions did not comply with the requirements of the labor code as they failed to specifically cite the treatment guidelines set forth in the medical treatment utilization schedule, but reconsideration was denied. The two commissioners who disagreed with the employer in the terse denial simply stated that a requesting physician's report need not cite to the MTUS in order to comply with Labor Code Section 4604.5.1. They argued that the medical evidence supporting applicants' need for right shoulder surgery was not only consistent with the MTUS, as interpreted by the work comp judge, but also was compelling. Commissioner Razo, however, disagreed, stating that he does not agree that a requesting physician's medical report need not cite to the MTUS in order to comply with Section 4604.5. Thus, the WCAB approved of a work comp judge being the person to read, interpret, and apply treatment guidelines instead of a medical doctor. However, this stance seems to be contraindicated in prior panel and appellate-level decisions. The Court of Appeal ruled that a FIHA discrimination claim brought by an industrially injured deputy sheriff does not require evidence of animus. Here's what happened in the partially published case of Wallace versus the County of Stanislaus. Dennis Wallace was hired by the County of Stanislaus in 1997 as a deputy sheriff. He started in patrol and then worked in various positions with the sheriff's department until 2007 until he injured his left knee and filed a work comp claim. He had knee surgery in 2008 then received 4850 paid leave of absence from time to time until he returned to light duty in the property and evidence room. He was given walking and standing restrictions after his recovery. At first, the county offered Wallace an assignment as a bailiff, and as a bailiff, the sergeants who supervised him had no issues with his performance. Later, and AME increased the work restrictions, adding lifting and other restrictions. Thus, the county removed him from his bailiff's position on the grounds that he could not perform the job with those restrictions. So Wallace filed a civil complaint alleging causes of action under the California Fair Employment and Housing Act for discrimination, disability discrimination, failure to accommodate his disability, and failure to engage in the interactive process. But a jury was deadlocked after the first jury trial on some of the causes of action, so a second trial was scheduled. Over the three months before the second trial commenced, Wallace returned to full duty as a patrol officer. Then, after the second jury trial, the court entered judgment in favor of the county and Wallace appealed. The Court of Appeal reversed in the partially published case. Wallace claimed on appeal that the jury instructions were reversible error since they told the jury that evidence of animus was required to find for the plaintiff. But the Court of Appeal concluded that an employer can violate the law by taking an adverse employment action against an employee even if the employer harbored no animosity or ill will against the employee or the class of persons with that disability. This conclusion resolves how the jury should have been instructed on the county's motivation or intent in connection with the disability discrimination claim. But the trial court modified the standard jury instruction to say the opposite. This was error, and the judgment reversed accordingly. The court published its discussion of motive and animus to alert practitioners and other courts that animus is an imprecise term that can cause confusion when used in disability discrimination cases. To avoid this confusion, courts and practitioners would be better served by limiting their use of the terms animus and ill will in employment discrimination cases. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the state of Vermont cannot compel health insurers to hand over data on the amount paid on medical claims. In doing so, it affirmed Liberty Mutual Insurance Company's contention that Federal law prohibited such a requirement in the case of Gobiel versus Liberty Mutual. The U.S. Supreme Court in a 6-2 decision found that a 2005 Vermont data collection law that was aimed at improving the quality of health care did not apply to self-funded insurance plans which are most commonly used by large companies. Self-funded plans provide insurance for 93 million Americans, according to the American Benefits Council. They are an alternative to plans in which companies contract with insurance companies which assume the risk. The Obama administration had supported the state of Vermont in the case. Liberty Mutual sued after Vermont issued a subpoena to Blue Cross in August 2011, ordering it to file data on its covered Vermont people or risk a $2,000 a day fine and loss of its license to operate in the state. Blue Cross administers Liberty's plan. The ruling is likely to put limits on similar laws in 17 other states. Writing for the court's majority, conservative Justice Anthony Kennedy said that reporting disclosure and record-keeping are central to and an essential part of the federal law, meaning that it trumps the state's effort to legislate on the same issue. The fact that reporting is a principal and essential feature of ERISA demonstrates that Congress intended to preempt state reporting laws like Vermont's. Two of the court's liberal justices, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor, dissented. The Vermont law mandated that insurers provide the state data on the types of healthcare care services they paid for and how much they paid in a bid to keep health care costs under control and improve quality. Vermont is one of 18 states with a data collection law. Liberty Mutual and its supporters argued that such requirements were a particular problem for companies that operate nationally because they must meet multiple different mandates. Liberty Mutual said the ERISA law is intended to protect employers from a patchwork of burdensome state regulations. And now our fraud report. Hospitals, health systems, and health care providers are more than ever entering into settlement agreements to resolve allegations of fraud of the False Claims Act. In just the month of February, at least nine cases involved voluntary payment of money back to the government in the face of fraud allegations. In one of the bigger deals, the Department of Justice inked a deal for more than $23 million with 51 hospitals across the nation, including Cleveland Clinic and San Francisco-based Dignity Health Hospitals, to settle allegations related to the implantation of cardiac devices. Adventist Health System agreed to pay $2 million for allegedly leftover portions of single-dose vials of chemotherapy drugs given to patients and charging the government in the process. Pfizer's Wyeth Unit agreed to pay a $784.6 million settlement for cases related to the calculation of Medicaid rebates for a gastric drug. And four physicians and two compounding pharmacies agreed to pay the federal government a total of approximately $10 million to resolve allegations they submitted false claims to TRICARE. Rose Radiology Centers in Tampa, Florida agreed to pay the federal government $8.71 million to resolve allegations it violated the False Claims Act and Norwalk Hospital in Fairfield County, Connecticut agreed to pay the federal government $920,000 to settle allegations that it falsely billed Medicare while treating patients for osteoporosis. Memorial Health University Medical Center and its affiliates in Savannah, Georgia agreed to pay more than $9.89 million to settle unlawful referral allegations, and this was just one month of fraud settlements nationwide. Nursing homes in California and notably in Orange County are outpacing the nation in embracing the most expensive form of therapy for their patients on Medicare. 72% of Medicare rehabilitation patients in Orange County nursing homes in 2014, received treatment at the highest rate allowed. That compares to only 66% statewide and 58% nationwide. The practice, known as ultra-high care, can require sometimes frail patients to receive at least 12 hours of physical, occupational, or speech therapy every week. And, according to the three major therapist professional groups, some therapists in nursing homes say they're being told to give inappropriate treatment to patients. One member said she personally saw Medicare fraud skyrocket in her 16 years as a social services director at six nursing homes, including three in Orange County she said the homes would pretty much twist the therapist's arms to squeeze out another week of care at the ultra-high level. And when she handled patient discharges, if they still had Medicare benefits available, they would not let her discharge the patients. A handful of these nursing home therapists have turned whistleblower, filing lawsuits under the Federal False Claims Act. In November 2013, Mission VAL-based Ensign Group agreed to pay $48 million to settle a case involving allegedly false rehabilitation claims at Sea Cliff Healthcare Center in Huntington Beach and five nursing homes in other Southern California cities. There are pending cases against two of the nation's largest nursing home chains, HCR Manor and Life Care Centers of America alleging that managers pressured therapists to step up treatments. They also allegedly administered expensive therapy to dying patients. Both HCR and Life Care are fighting the lawsuits. Life Care has nursing homes in Garden Grove, La Habra, and Lake Forest. The recent $125 million settlement with Kindred Health Care, the nation's largest nursing home operator, A company with annual revenues topping $2.5 billion sent its stock to the lowest point in nearly four years. But Kindred denied any wrongdoing. Two Glendale men were convicted of laundering more than $1 million generated through fraudulent billings to Medicare for equipment and tests that were either medically unnecessary or never provided. After a three-week trial, a federal jury found Karen Gary Sarkisian guilty of six counts of money laundering, five counts of health care fraud, and one count of conspiring to commit money laundering. Edgar Pogosian, also known as Edgar Hagopian, was convicted of one count each of conspiring to commit money laundering and money laundering. Both are slated to be sentenced in June. Sarkissian operated an Echo Park clinic where a physician assistant, Latanya Smith, ordered medically unnecessary tests and services that led to more than $1.2 million in fraudulent Medicare claims. Smith also ordered medically unnecessary DME and tests that were referred to other Medicare providers, who then submitted more than $10 million in fraudulent claims. Smith pleaded guilty to five counts of health fraud and is due to be sentenced in May. Sarkisian was involved in laundering the fraudulent proceeds through five bogus corporations established by two men also convicted in the scheme. Pagosian's uncle, Kachator, Kakobian was sentenced last month to 57 months in prison after pleading guilty to conspiring to launder health care fraud proceeds and underreporting his income from the conspiracy. The Glendale resident was also ordered to pay more than $600,000 in restitution. Another Glendale resident involved in the scheme, Aram Amayan, was sentenced to 51 months in prison and ordered to pay more than $350,000 in restitution. And in medical news, the director of head and neck surgery at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center has used a snake-like robotic arm to perform more than a half dozen throat surgeries over the past month. Simply put, he says the robot is more accurate than the surgeon could ever hope to be. He said the flex robotic system is so easy to use, even medical students can learn to use it with proficiency within three tries. The surgical robot he has been using has sub-millimeter accuracy and thus causes less damage to soft tissue. Studies showed, as far back as 2008, that patients undergoing minimally invasive heart bypass surgery using a robot had a shorter hospital stay, faster recovery, fewer complications, and a better chance that the bypass vessels would remain open. And last year, a Florida hospital proved robots could enable surgeons to remotely operate on patients. Being able to perform remote surgeries would allow specialists to attend to any patient anywhere in the world. The da Vinci robotic surgical system, the most common robotic equipment in use today, is involved in hundreds of thousands of surgeries worldwide every year. The Food and Drug Administration approved the da Vinci surgical system from Intuitive Surgical in Sunnyvale back in 2000. Since that time, the da Vinci has been adopted by hospitals in the United States and Europe to treat a range of conditions. The system's console gives a surgeon a high-definition magnified 3D view of the surgical site. Robots can also be used to deliver high doses of radiation with sub-millimeter accuracy anywhere in the body. The accuracy of Accuray CyberKnife Robotic Radiosurgery System is one such system developed in 1990 by a professor of neurosurgery and radiation oncology at Stanford University. It was approved by the FDA in 2001. The CyberKnife system can treat tumors anywhere in the body and has been used on 40,000 patients worldwide. Surgical robots are increasingly showing up tableside in operating rooms and they may someday allow people with only basic medical knowledge to perform operations outside of a hospital setting. By 2020, surgical robotic sales are expected to almost double to $6.4 billion. Even as opiate abuse has become a growing problem, Overdose deaths involving sedatives and anti-seizure medications in the benzodiazepine category have also risen steeply. Benzodiazepines are most often prescribed for anxiety disorders, mood disorders such as depression, and insomnia. Benzodiazepines include alprazolam, sold as Xanax, chlordiazepoxide, sold as Librium, diazepam, sold as Valium, and lorazepam, sold as Ativan. Benzodiazepines are also one of the more common prescription drugs used recreationally. When used recreationally, benzodiazepines are usually administered orally, but sometimes they are taken intranasally or intravenously. When illegally used as recreational drugs, benzodiazepines are often referred to on the street as benzos, tamazis, jellies, eggs, mogies, or valleys. These Schedule Three and Four substances have also earned the dubious distinction of being second only to opioid painkillers like OxyContin as our nation's most widely abused class of drug. Prescriptions for benzodiazepines have more than tripled and fatal overdoses have more than quadrupled in the past 20 years. Benzodiazepines have several known safety risks in addition to overdose. They are conclusively linked to falls, fractures, motor vehicle accidents, and can lead to misuse and addiction. Researchers now say that in 20 years the number of adults with benzodiazepine prescriptions grew by more than two-thirds, from 8.1 million to 13.5 million. The Centers for Disease Control reports that overdose deaths involving benzodiazepines have also gone up. The study seems to suggest that it may be wise for workers' compensation claim administrators to submit treatment requests for benzodiazepines to the UR process when abuse or overprescribing is suspected. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB reports that workers' compensation premiums in California continue to grow at double-digit rates. And the 2014 Oregon Workers' Compensation Premium Rate Ranking Summary showed California's workers' comp premium rates were $3.48 per $100 last year, topping number 2 Connecticut by $0.61. But while rates in California are headed up, other states just announced rate reductions. Nevada state officials announced that workers' comp insurance rates are heading lower. Regulators approved an average decrease of 5.5% for Nevada workers' compensation voluntary insurance loss costs and an average decrease of 4.2% for workers' compensation insurance assigned risk rates was also approved. This Nevada decrease is the largest since a 2010 filing when costs decreased by an average of 7.6%. And Pennsylvania businesses will see another decrease in workers' compensation insurance rates that will drop 0.9% saving Pennsylvania businesses an estimated $20 million this year. This is the fifth consecutive cut in as many years in Pennsylvania and brings the cumulative savings to $570 million for the past five years. The Ohio Bureau of Workers' Compensation said that it wants to cut the average rate by 8.6% projected to save private employers $113 million. The cut would be the latest in a series of reductions in premiums for private employers that began in 2011. The Bureau has credited lower rates to lower-than-expected claims costs and a decline in workplace injuries. The DWC has posted a new court calendar on its website, listing daily hearing schedules at its 24 district offices and satellites. The calendar is updated daily and shows the schedule for the next two weeks. Legal practitioners and others can now confirm court dates from their computers. The DWC Chief Judge Paige Levy said... This will help them plan their schedules and will also reduce calls to the local district offices. The calendar is downloadable and sortable as a spreadsheet, and step-by-step instructions demonstrate how to filter by an attorney's name. The calendar download will be primarily of use to attorneys and claims administrators who are looking up multiple cases in which they are a party. Injured workers looking for information on their own cases are best served by using the public information case search tool or contacting the information and assistance unit. Users are responsible for ensuring the information obtained by way of the download function is not used for purposes other than those allowed by law. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.